When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jacob Goldberg, your host, and today I'm very happy to be speaking with Dr. Lee Grossman. Lee and I will be talking about his latest book, The Psychoanalytic Encounter and the Misuse of Theory, which was published by Rutledge in 2023. Before we get into our interview, I just want to introduce Lee to our listeners. For 40 years, Lee worked as a training and supervising analyst at the San Francisco Center for Psychoanalysis and was in private practice at the Psychoanalytic Institute of Northern California. He also served on the editorial boards of both the Journal of the American Psychoanalytic Association and Psychoanalytic Quarterly. Now retired from clinical work, Lee is an exhibiting photographer whose work can be seen on his website, leegrossman.net. His pictures are, much like his book, touching, humorous, provocative, and challenging, and I encourage listeners to check them out after the interview. So welcome to the show, Lee. Thank you. Glad to be here. <laughs> yeah, um, as, as are we. Um, you know, Lee, so the, the first question we usually just begin with on this podcast um, is, in as much as we can know our motivations, uh, what inspired you or brought you to write this book? Oh, that's maybe my least favorite question. <laughs> uh, I don't know exactly. I uh, I was looking back at a lot of old papers, thinking about, did I want to collect them? And one of the things that struck me in reading some of them, reading them all together rather than the way I wrote them, which was one at a time, maybe one a year, uh, was that there seemed to be some through lines, there seemed to be some themes that that came out, and the theme, the themes are what ended up shaping the book. Um, things like um, the relationship between theory and technique, the concept of technique itself, uh, the relationship of character to um, allegiance to theory, and so on. Um, th- that and um, 
some of the irritations that I ran into uh, in my teaching and supervising, um, which included the fact that the observation that students, particularly at the very beginning, are desperate for something to hang on to as they're thrown into the deep water or a clinical situation. And the thing that is offered them, uh, mistakenly in some ways, is psychoanalytic theory, which no matter how complex or arcane it is, it comes with it the idea that there's a text to which one can refer. And so it's very reassuring to the uh, potentially lost new clinician and what provides such a thing. Um, but it also uh, needs to be discarded at some point relatively early in training uh, before it becomes an obstacle to learning how to listen. So, uh, those are the, the kinds of things that come to mind. Yeah, you know, as I mentioned, this is um, this is this is my first interview on the channel, and I, you know, in the weeks preparing for this, I was thinking to myself, man, it'd be really nice if there was like a manual that I could have uh, to help me guide guide me through the interview. Um, and that, or, really, there are plenty of people ready to provide one. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, hopefully, I'm going to do my best to discard whatever manuals I found along the way. Um, you know, we. Uh, as I was listening to you um, and doing my best to listen to myself listen to you, um, I'm thinking of one of a, a major theme in, in your book that, in fact, was uh, you devoted a whole chapter to it. It was called What the Analyst Does Not Hear. And I, I was really struck by this chapter because, you know, we think of listening as a neutral activity uh, when, in fact, listening is... Uh, overdetermined in so many different ways. And I think I just wanted to begin our conversation, you know, maybe just have you reflect on, um, you know, what makes listening so hard as a therapist? Okay. Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, well, the first thing that makes listening hard is the same thing that makes listening possible, which is to say that we're human. Um, so what that means as far as listening is concerned is that we have all kinds of preconceptions already built in um, that shape the way we listen, what we listen for, what we're deaf to. Um, and those issues come up in clinical work in a very peculiar way. In a certain way, when we try to teach potential analysts to listen, what we're trying to teach them to do is to listen naively, which is, which is easy to do if you're four years old or eight years old even, but is extremely difficult once you've been trained. And by trained, I don't just mean uh, in psychology, but I mean trained by the social system that you've grown up into. We learn a language, uh, which is not just the words we speak, but also the way we, we think and apprehend the, the world. And the way we listen is very much a part of that. So we need that in order to make contact with our fellow humans. But we also need somehow to listen past it or to listen through it, you know, to give up the, uh, the social conventions and hear freshly and newly, and that's a big challenge. 
this phrase listening naively is quite arresting. <laughs> uh, I'm, as, I'm wondering if you could maybe uh, expand upon it and weave in somehow um, your thoughts on the notion of technique and the function of technique in analysis, because I imagine um, when you're describing, you know, your irritations and sympathies for training uh, candidates, which in addition to this being my first interview, I'm also about to begin not analytic training, but uh, training in graduate school. Um, and thank you. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering if, you know, so I'm imagining that these students, you know, are learning quote unquote theory and theories of technique. Um, and so, yeah, could you describe the relationship between listening naively? Can you define what analytic technique is and perhaps even what it conceals um, or why it's misleading or deceptive to begin with? Well, I, I'm glad that you ended that question the way you did, because the first thing I would say about analytic technique is the concept itself is deceptive. Uh, usually when one talks about technique, one implies some reproducible action, the way uh, a surgeon doing a Bill Roth II anastomosis um, the, the technique will be the same no matter who the surgeon or who the gallbladder is. Uh, so uh, it turns out um, that in psychoanalysis or psychotherapy, that's a terrible model. It's, it, it's, uh, it's a very problematic model, and yet we all approach our training initially, as you mentioned about your interview technique, you know, wishing there were a manual. Um, technique, if it implies rules of technique, if it implies rules of behavior for the therapist, um, is ill-suited to the nature of the work we do. It, among other things, it interferes with naive listening, um, that we can't listen freshly if we're listening according to a, a map that we have in advance about what we're supposed to hear. Um, but also the way the way technique was taught when I was a candidate, and starting with Freud's papers on technique, um, or maybe I should say the way we listened to the way we were taught, was to say uh, we will grab on to actions that we can do. We'll learn a technical rule as opposed to other versions of technique that I'll mention. A technical rule would be something like don't answer question or um, don't reveal any personal information. When you give somebody that rule, it's a place to start, but it's meant to be discarded as soon as the underlying uh, principles are understood. And I think there there is a place for technical principles. And if analytic technique would restrict itself to uh, identifying principles, then we'd be on solid ground. And ultimately, I think that's where most analysts go as they develop, is that they, they fairly quickly give up the manual in favor of grasping the concepts. So the, an example of a principle as opposed to a rule would be something like, um, <laughs> I realized I, I was about to phrase this the way Immanuel Kant phrases the capital uh, <laughs> imperative, which is, Act, act in such a way that the maximum of your action can be made universal law. That's Kant. That's uh, not exactly what I mean, but something like uh, talk to your patients 
in a way that opens up rather than forecloses the possibility of learning what the patient's way of apprehending the world is. Um, so instead of answering a direct question, you want to learn to listen for the motivation that brought up the question at that moment in this context um, and find some way to invite the patient's participation in exploring that. The premise being that oftentimes answering a question directly relieves the pressure that the patient felt to ask it and therefore makes the pressure itself less accessible to explore. Now, that's a debatable, that's an arguable uh, idea as to whether that's true or not, but that's a principle behind the notion, the, the so-called rule not to answer questions. Once you have the grasp of the principle, you don't need the rule. And, you know, there will be plenty of times where you'll answer questions directly, and there will be plenty of times where you won't. But how you then proceed isn't codable as a rule. You know, you can't put it in a rule book. You can't say, say the following words or use the following sentences. How you pre proceed is going to depend instead on who you are and how you're organized and, and how you think and how you feel. And those are all very individual aspects of character that are the same as those that you're trying to explore in your patient. That's what you're trying to learn about your patient. So one of the problems with the concept of technique is that it seems to imply that the analyst is better off operating under different rules from those that the patient is operating under. Uh, in order to achieve optimal openness, let's say, and that's simply false. I can't remember if there was more to your question about that. Um, I'm not sure if I can either, but that was a great answer. <laughs> um, um, yeah, as as you're speaking, I'm I'm reminded of a, another point that you kind of bring up on this theme. I'm just gonna flip to it in your book, um, where you say. Excuse me while I find the page. In the optimal course of professional development, an analyst may begin as a Kleinian or a self-psychologist or an intersubjectivist, but ultimately the analyst should realize that one is of no school but one's own. The alternative is to become a robot. There's not much difference between an ego-psychological robot or a Kleinian robot or a Cahoosian robot. Robots, after all, have interchangeable parts and the possibility of a technical manual to govern their operation. Humans, including patients and analysts, are not well described by technical manuals. Now, there's an interesting history to, um, that demonstrates how mature clinicians give up that notion. And famous clinicians have an especially difficult job to give it up. And so, of course, I start with Freud. Um, Freud once famously said, French. Moi, je ne suis pas Freudiste. Me, I'm not a Freudian. Um, Jung said the same thing. Jung said, thank God I'm young and not a Jungian. And Harold Searles once made a remark to the effect that he, he had gotten into some clinical trouble with a patient. And then he realized he had found himself being Searles rather than himself. I, I think they're nice examples of what I'm trying to get at in that 
paragraph you read that um, that the analytic encounter, the therapeutic encounter, is a something that arises between two people one time only, earned, and it, it's not very generalizable, which is unfortunate in a way. But that's also what we strive for: is a kind of freshness and newness and openness that I hope that phrase about naive listening captures. Um, and analysts, especially famous analysts, often are very tempted to be their brand, in effect, rather than who they are personally. This is raising interesting questions, which you kind of pick up at the end of that chapter, um, which when I read, you know, I was just like, I kind of couldn't put down, um, which has to do with the implications for training and for teaching. Um, I'm reminded, you quote Janet Malcolm a few times um, and, and her book uh, on the impossible profession. And, you know, that that line from Interminable and Interminable cites as well teaching and governing, I think, as like the two other impossible professions. And so maybe you could say as a teacher, what is it that makes teaching impossible? <laughs> Well, it's not impossible, but it's not as easy as we would like it to be. Um, I, I think teaching does require some kind of scaffolding, but I think the scaffolding has to be, above all, a, a model of the mind rather than a, a theory of technique. Um, I think students need, right from the beginning, to initially, I think, to accept rather passively uh, a model of the mind. So, for example, people sometimes come to, or always come to analytic training, not knowing what they're getting into, but with some appreciation that the model of the mind they're going to uh, embrace is Freud's, at least at first. Um, that runs into problems almost immediately because Freud's model of the mind evolved fairly dramatically over 50 years or more. And um, wasn't one thing, and in some places was contradictory, and in some places, you know, he rewrote um, his theories without ever making clear that he was abandoning his old theories, for example. But whatever the case, one needs to have a model of the mind, and then through one's history as a practitioner, one is constantly um, refining it. That's that's a, that's where theory belongs. And then the, the difficult thing in terms of teaching clinical work becomes a matter of how do you take a model of the mind, realize that it applies to your patient, but also realize that it applies to you, and then find a way to have a conversation with your patient, which is going to explore territory that your model of the mind tells you neither you nor the patient want to explore. The patients come because they want to be relieved of pain. They don't come because they want to learn about psychoanalysis. A, a, a concomitant or like an adjacent theme that you also touch on in this chapter, which um, this chapter on, I believe it's called analytic technique or reconsideration of the concepts. Um, and in this chapter, you speak not only about technique, but you also speak about the function of theoretical schools and what theoretical schools, um, what they do for us, and what they uh, what they defend us against. Um, can you speak about why some 
why we feel compelled to join theoretical schools or to ally ourselves with theoretical schools um, and and your alternative recommendation for how we might think about um, uh, organizing ourselves should we like to. Sure. Um, first, let me say I'm indebted. Uh, there, are, there are two classes of answer, and I hope I'm not so demented that by the time I finish the first, I won't have forgotten the second. Uh, but I'm indebted, first of all, to Lawrence Friedman uh, of New York, who uh, I first discovered through an incredible book called The Anatomy of Psychotherapy. Um, Friedman, in certain ways, seems like an analytic outsider. He's unique in that, although he's a psychiatrist, he approaches psychoanalytic theory, of which he is a, a master, um, in terms of looking more or less sociologically at the clinical situation as a source of pressures put upon the therapist. Excuse me. And he, um, he pioneered that approach, I think, in a way that he's able to demonstrate that certain theoretical innovations um, serve the function of making the therapist more comfortable in an inherently uncomfortable situation. And I, I've tried to build on his work, but I really owe him a tremendous debt, I think, for that. But so that's the first function uh, of theory that's not immediately obvious, which is um, that theory is designed <clears throat> to help the therapist deal with his or her own anxiety in the clinical situation. And that, that there's a kind of optimal level, one might say, to the analyst's anxiety, um, neither maximal nor minimal, which, uh, which is to say the theory shouldn't make the analyst's anxiety go away. It should make it bearable. And in that particular function, and that is an off-label function of theory, certainly. Um, the other half of the question that you asked me has to do with how we choose theories and why we choose theories, why we develop such powerful theoretical allegiances. Um, part of that answer, of course, is the theory we're brought up with, whether it's in our own analysis or in our early exposure or whatever, is essentially our mother tongue. And it's worth, it's worth remembering that a theory is a map and that the map is not the territory. The, the clinical territory is, is different from the theory and that every theoretical school has a different map. They have certain strengths in terms of what they are able to detail more or less accurately and certain weaknesses in terms of what they tend to overlook, but they're all maps. And so that's why I said earlier that I think it's, it's a lifelong project for the practitioner to revise and refine one's own model of the mind is that um, it's not the territory. And so one needs to make certain emendations to the map in order to make it work better for the way one happens to read maps. But a bigger, a bigger point about why people develop powerful theoretical allegiances, I think, is that the work we do is so potentially isolating and that it's fairly terrifying to feel like you're out there all alone. Even though we have 
societies and institutes and conventions and so on, uh, where we get together. We work out there. It's just us and the patient. There's nobody looking over our shoulder. Even even if you're doing supervised work, there's really nobody looking over your shoulder in a way in real time. And so it's tremendously comforting to have a, a group that you can identify with. Early on, to be able to say, I'm a Kleinian or I'm, I'm a relational guy or whatever it happens to be, makes you feel like you're not all alone. And so that's very helpful. But then finally, what that leads to is that our theoretical groups, which are very powerful, they're essentially the political subunits of psychotherapy and, and very competitive one with the other in a kind of narcissism of petty differences way, to use a Freud phrase, um, that the allegiances tend to overlook the fact that they actually have remarkably little to do with how the individual clinician practices. Now, anybody that's listened to a lot of clinicians in a room listening to clinical material will find it easy to discover that. Um, there's a vocabulary, a language, again, a map for each, each um, orientation, but it's just a language. And the territory that you're exploring isn't captured by a single language. So um, what we find is Kleinians, when they report their work, sound like Kleinians. And ego psychologists sound like ego psychologists when they report their work or when they discuss their work. But if you listen to them discussing each other's work, um, particularly if the work is not being presented as representative of a technique or of a, of a school, then... The, there are similarities and differences that come up that are very powerful, but they're also subtler than any of our theories are. And they're also not correlated with our theories. It's, it's kind of a remarkable phenomenon. One example of this that um, some analysts might consider is uh, the work of Betty Joseph, who was a tremendously influential British Kleinian um, until fairly, until she died fairly recently. And the work of Paul Gray, who was a particular species of ego psychologist in America, who also died you know, to me recently as any time in the last 30 years. So um, they could not be more different theoretically. But if you listen to a segment of work from either of them, what you hear is a very microscopic focus on the process from second to second, minute to minute, of a very intense preoccupation with what we might call the here and now transference, the, the interaction between the two participants in real time, literally moment to moment, very microscopic. I mean, there are plenty of other approaches, or I should say other practitioners, whose work is more, more global or more fluid in terms of changing lenses from uh, an intense close-up macro lens to a, uh, a wide-angle lens. But with those two, those are the two things you hear so that their work sounds very similar, and yet their theory couldn't be more disparate. 
I think the, the rest of your question was, how do we fix it or what do we do about it? Well, boy, I wish I had a, a glib answer to that, but I don't. Um, I, I'm, my particular model of the mind that I find most useful is Hans Lowald, his, his work. And he, I'm not going to bother to defend or articulate his work because I just gave you all the reasons in the world why that's not really relevant. But one of the things that Lowell does that does distinguish him from other well-published authors is he never espouses a theory of technique. He seems kind of passively to accept the idea of to, uh, Freud's ideas of technique, which are very non-manualizable. <laughs> if you've ever heard any of Freud's actual work, like if you read the the notes to the Ratman case that are included in the standard edition, you get a picture of Freud acting like Freud. You don't get a picture of him acting like an analyst. He sounds like a person. Um, but Lowell's writings don't include any theory of technique at all. Um, in his collected works, he divides his papers into two categories. One category is, is theoretical. The other category which we're all prepared for it to be technical, is actually about the theory of clinical process, which is still a theory. And he never espouses a thing that the, the analyst should do exactly. What he does is clarify, at least to my satisfaction, enough of the models, uh, the model of the mind, or a model of the mind that I happen to subscribe to, that the, to imply that a therapist's technique should arise organically. And by technique, in this case, I just mean what a therapist does in the consulting room should arise organically from his grasp of how people's minds work. And the fact that he's one of two people in a room whose minds are interacting. And so there is no theory of technique. Now, I have a friend who was supervised by Lowald, and he was super impressed by Lowald as a theoretician, but he was particularly early in his career, which is when he was supervised by him as a candidate, a little taken aback by the fact that Lowell never told him what he would do, what he, Lowell would do. And he never told the candidate what the candidate should do. He, he basically said, what are you hearing? Uh, how did you get to your conclusion? How does that fit with your understanding? Um, so this is by no means an, an advocacy for Lowell's mode of supervision. I actually don't share it. But um, it does show how, in a way, if we take my views seriously, we're never in a position to tell the candidate what he ought to be doing or what he ought not to be doing unless we can show him that it conflicts with his own model of mind. And then that's what we ought to be showing him. What we can show him is what we hear that he didn't hear, not in order to suggest that he should have heard it, but at least in order to open the possibility that the reason he didn't hear it was that there was something in the way, and then, and then he's in, in a position to explore that. I'm happy this is going to be archived. I'm going to be listening to this one for a while. Um, we, I, um, geez, I feel like, again, like I'm at this, I'm at the root and I could just go on so many different vectors. Um, but I, 
Um, I want to, uh, I, I think we're going to do a lot of circling back in our remaining time. Um, but to, 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 to shift to maybe a different section of the book, which I thought was, uh, so exciting because it was, well, one, it was pretty laugh out loud hilarious. Um, and two, uh, because it was unusual in, in technical or in, in, in books of quote unquote theory, um, I'm the only time I've ever really been able to read any analyst on the subject of analytic writing is that paper by um, Ogden. And you devote an entire uh, section, three chapters um, of your work to to analytic writing. Um, and we've been kind of hovering around this idea, you know, like, what does it mean to learn? I, I'm sometimes, you know, learn as a train as a, a candidate, and I'm sometimes kind of shocked by how uh the analytic community isn't necessarily so alert to the fact that they're all kind of like um, uh, unbeknownst to themselves, like literary critics, just or, or like obsessively reading these writers and and really um, lionizing their works. I'm wondering if you could just speak about the analytic writing, um, and I'm also hoping you can take up. Another one of your ideas, which I think, again, you mentioned at the end, you know, like you wish you had a glib answer for what we can change about this. But you did. You do actually have a suggestion. Um, perhaps it's ideal about what we might do for uh, future forms of uh, uh, case writing, which you talk about as the anti vignette. Um, so perhaps maybe you can just give us a tour of, of your thoughts on analytic writing. Uh and and bringing bringing our attention to this to this brilliant <laughs> idea of, of the anti vignette. <laughs> uh, okay, um, I think the first challenge of analytic writing is that it's an impossible way to capture an analytic encounter, um, and so I think analytic reading has to be approached with that understanding. Uh, one of the uh, now I'm going to free associate, but one of the uh, uh, conflicts that comes up about analytic writing has to do with case reporting. Uh, is it accurate? Uh, how accurate is it? Why don't we use just a verbatim transcript and so on? To start with the laughs, the verbatim transcript loses all the sensory data besides the words. Um, you know, even the recording of an analytic session, the video recording of an analytic session, loses data. Uh, it loses the feel of the patient in the room, and that's, that's kind of difficult to capture. But the other thing is, you know, more obviously, analytic writing is um, telegraphic. It's, it's so condensed in order to make any point and put it in any context that what gets left out is most of what goes on in an analysis. It's not the patient telling a dream, the analyst making a pithy interpretation, and patient suddenly seeing the light changing. Um, you know, that model of interpretive work, which makes interpretations a punchline, is a false model of how the work Proceeds is the work proceeds in a way that involves a lot of starting and stopping and a lot of stumbling and a lot of dead ends and a lot of groping in the dark and a lot of confrontation of one's own demons as well as one's patient's demons. Um, 
and a lot of intense feeling. And transcripts and, and recordings don't capture that. Um, and so what you get when you get a piece of analytic writing is really a piece of analytic theorizing. You know, it's it's a, a cross-section of a longitudinal process, and it removes the the whole developmental aspect of the process completely. Um, and it um, lends itself to certain misreadings. I don't think this is really a problem with the literature as much as it is with our attitude toward the literature, uh, that we expect more of it than it can deliver. And what happens when we read the literature is we come away with this artificial sense that analysts are brilliant, that change happens in a, in a session, that um, uh, the analyst doesn't speak until he or she has um, something incredibly deep and profound to say. You know, these are all artifacts of the literature in certain respects. Um, I can't remember what more there was to your question. But, uh, oh, perhaps it was just maybe kind of bringing in... To bringing in this idea of the anti-vignette. Well, the anti-vignette, right. Well, you know, that was obviously a, a tongue-in-cheek. But the notion would be that, um, you know, psychoanalytic writing would be truer to analysis is it reflected the fact that 99% of the time in analysis, the analyst is in the dark and doesn't really have you know, he has feelings about what's going on. He may be forming hypotheses like crazy. But, you know, he's not about to make a uh, an earth-shaking interpretive statement. Uh, the work is much more, not only is it much more, uh, much clumsier, but it's much more collaborative than I think the literature tends to show. Uh, the, natures of the nature of the collaboration is, can be, can, uh, can be extremely wide, uh, but some kind of collaboration takes place, if only by virtue of the fact that the patient keeps showing up. I think it was um, not Don Jackson, but somebody of the era. Um, oh, it was Carl Rogers, actually, who his model of psychotherapy uh, had built into it the notion that the patient's continuing to show up. I'm oh, great. You know, my dog's going to bark for a while. This is this is more like real analysis. Than... Yeah, this is the real surprise of otherness. <laughs> no, I kind of lost my train of thought there. But, uh, even yet, we were talking about uh, that uh, a realistic portrayal of the work would show all this stumbling around. And um... oh, you you were saying something about Carl Rogers, actually. Oh, right, Carl Rogers, uh, and the notion that um, the patients. Continued showing up is a sign of this collaboration for hers, and that the analyst's job is to. Um, I, I don't agree with this, but Rogers' work I, notion was the analyst's job is simply to facilitate the patient's self exploration um, until such time as the patient stops coming, and that that that's the uh, the point at which. That's how the judgment is uh, of whether it's helping or not is made. I think there's something kind of nice about that. I, you know, where I disagree with Rogers is I don't think in the ethos of the time he took full account of what the therapist brings to the process, which is 
the the role of a listener, which is profoundly important. And I think I'm not an expert on Rogers, but I don't think it was the thrust of his work. Lee, um, you have a chapter called "Object Preserving: um, The Object Preserving Function of Sadomasochism." This is a theoretical chapter. That this is your single theoretical chapter, and boy, is it really um, instructive, educational, and and moving. Um, the whole time, I was I was um, I was I was pretty enraptured. Uh, the motivation for that chapter was that uh, the observation that I made some years back that uh, Freud's major, one of Freud's major shifts in his theory was his revision of the original pleasure principle to um, include the, the notion of eros in the death instinct. Or maybe I should say his, his his development of those ideas to include the original pleasure principle. And one of the things that happened politically, I want to say, to that change is that Freudians, especially American Freudians, never accepted the notion of the death instinct. Uh, Kleinians made the death instinct the very center of their work, and people knew that and that the disputes about Freud's revision were mainly arguments between the Freudians and the Kleinians about that particular, about the death instinct. But what struck me was that neither camp nor others seemed to me to take full uh, measure of, um, of what the significance of Eros was for Freud's theory. And so, for example, the things that motivated Freud to formulate the death instinct, masochism, which he began to think of as a kind of primary uh, experience related to the death instinct, um, suicide, um, what he called the negative therapeutic reaction, which was the observation that when he... Uh, told patients something that they seemed to grasp, which ought to relieve them and made them feel worse. Um, and the repetition compulsion, I think, was also in that category of things that Freud used to justify the idea of a, a death instinct. And again, I don't know who your listeners are exactly, but what he meant by a death instinct was the idea that there was some inherent kind of entropic um, trend in uh, human life that led toward death, that led toward complete cessation of stimulation. So it was actually the inheritor of what he used to call the pleasure principle, and now fell not to Eros, but to the death instinct. Um, and he also thought it was for reasons that I don't think he made very clear, always projected outward, or almost always projected outward, with the exceptions of those aspects that I just listed. Those were the internal versions. Of it was always projected outward meant that its manifestation clinically was aggression. And that's why the Freudians gave up the notion, didn't, didn't accept the notion of the death instinct, because starting with Hartman, at least, 
they all believed that aggression was a drive unto itself, and so you didn't need the concept of a, uh, the death instinct turned outward to explain it. But again, what they what they didn't see, I, I think, was that what the theory of Eros did, and what Freud was very explicit about, which I thought was a tremendously clinically useful distinction, was that Eros, the death instinct, could be defined in terms of what they set out to do, that the death instinct's manifestations set out to destroy, and Eros and its manifestations set out to bind together. So if you want to think of it in physical terms, since I mentioned entropy, the death instinct is entropic and Eros is negentropic. If that's the case, then you have to go back and reread everything Freud wrote with that in mind and see what kind of an impact it has. And that's what I did with his ideas about sadism and masochism, and that's what led me to that paper the, and, that, and ultimately the chapter in the book, which is that what we mean by sadism in every clinical example we can come up with, what we mean by sadism has to do with controlling somebody else, uh, not letting somebody get away from us. Now, that places it in dramatic contrast with the death instinct because destruction doesn't do that. Destruction breaks ties rather than creates ties. With that in mind, you know, looking back at every example of sadism I could find on every level of conceptualization from developmental, where Freud talks about the sadistic anal phase and what's going on in the toddler, um, to the fourth dog game that he describes his grandson playing where, in which he has a, a spool tied to a thread, and when he's, his mother leaves him, he plays with this object and throws it away, yelling, gone, fort. And then pulls on the thread and pulls it back, yelling "da," meaning "gone," uh, uh, meaning "here" or "back" or whatever it was. That what Freud talked about in that was that how this was revenge against the mother. But he wasn't at the time he wrote about that. He hadn't reformulated the pleasure principle. He hadn't reformulated his anxiety theory. So he put motivations entirely in terms of what was gratified. And so he thought of revenge as being gratified. Uh, but looking back at it, you know, that, that's one example I mentioned. Um, perversion, you know, so-called sadomasochistic perversion, uh, torture. Um, all of these things seem to me to be a much better fit to the model which says sadism is an effort to hang on to an object a person and control that person so that person can't do anything that either has them get away from you or hurt you. And um, that seemed to me not exactly a redefinition of sadism, but rather a pulling out of several threads of Freud's various ideas. He must have had four or five different ideas about sadomasochism in his history. And that seemed to be the uh, clarification of that point. So. I, I indulged in my theorizing temptation in that therapy. Well, no, it was yeah. Like I said, it was it was it was very it was I I, I 
it's it's on my mind as I'm it's it's transformed the way I think about sadomasochism. Um, Lee, I'm just looking at the time and I'm realizing that we're kind of rounding. Uh, we're 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 nearing the conclusion of our time together, and there was of course a lot in your book that we weren't able to address. Um, and I'm wondering if there's anything that you kind of want to just call our listeners' attention to um, as we kind of wind down wind down our time together. Well, I can say about my book that I can promise the reader that it's a lot funnier than Oedipus Rex. <laughs> yes, yes, um, yeah. It was it, there. There, there are moments of, and I, and I can I can add that. Yeah, there's so much. There's so much in this book. It's it's really kind of like just a a tour de force. Uh, it's a pleasure to read. Um, there's so much to be learned and uh, held on to. So, yeah, it was a, it was a real contribution. So, thank you so much for writing it. <laughs> well, you're welcome. You're very generous. Yeah. Um, we just like to wrap up uh, with our last question on the channel about being, um, you know, wh- what what are what are you working on now, and and how what's filling your time? Well, I'm retired from clinical work. I'm still working in essentially three different realms right now. Uh, one is psychoanalytic, and I'm trying to understand um, a bunch of things, none of which is fully formed in my mind, but one of them has to do with um, sacraments and um, how people connect nonverbally, what we mean by that. Um, uh, there are a set of related issues that have to do with my rediscovery of Gregory Bateson that I'm exploring, uh, which have, has to do with um, what it means to talk about thoughts without a thinker. That's led me to um, an exploration of um, uh, a, a rediscovery of Alan Watts and uh, Zen and um, looking into that a little bit. Uh, I don't know whether that's headed in any particular direction, but it's it's among the things I'm playing with at the moment. There's also my photographic work, which I, I continue to do, and uh, my non-analytic writing, which is uh, mostly but not entirely humorous. Um, so that's what keeps me busy. Well, uh, we look forward to seeing anything you uh, you produce, and hopefully, we can have you back on the podcast on with with another another book in the future, perhaps. Actually, I would love that. Yeah. So, everyone, uh, I've been speaking with um, Dr. Lee Grossman about his book, uh, "The Psychoanalytic Encounter and the Misuse of Theory." Um, I can't encourage you enough to go out and get a copy. So, thanks so much for joining us today, Lee. My pleasure.